0: Hi, this is Avery Amal, the editor-in-chief of the Spectrum. Welcome to our podcast in which we interview the newsmakers around Dartmouth High School. We'll be right back with this episode's guest. Today's podcast is a special one, as we'll be interviewing Bristol County's new sheriff Paul Harrow.:
1: Hi, I'm Paul. And here to chat with you guys about whatever it is you'd like to talk about. So thank you for having me on.
0: So to start off, I'm wondering what your initial motivation was for running for sheriff.
1: Well, I actually didn't want to run for sheriff. <laughs> True story. I was, um, I was looking at finishing up my time as mayor and then running for something else. I shouldn't say I didn't want to run for sheriff. That's not actually accurate. I was looking at multiple different offices and... After I finished with my reelection for mayor in twenty twenty one, I then turned and started looking at these different offices. And I felt compelled to get into this one. i I felt like this is the race I should run for. Um, there was an incumbent who had been there for twenty five years. And that's a long time. Uh, I don't believe in being a sheriff for life or mayor for life or governor for life or president for life. For executive offices, I think term limits are a good idea. Uh, for legislative, I don't feel that way because it like term limits would destroy the institutional knowledge and no one person has the power. But in an executive branch, you do have that concentration of power in just one person. And so, looking at what was going on in Bristol County with the uh, jail system, I thought it was certainly time for change. And I I worked in jail, I worked in prison uh, before I got into politics, and so I, I know what a jail system should look like and how things should um, be different. And I, I want to just bring in a much more modern approach to running the jail. Um, the you know. The campaign's over, so a lot of the things I used to say on the campaign, I'm just not saying anymore because, you know, we won. Don't need to keep relitigating it, to keep pushing it. But I, I do want to run a more modern jail system, though. Yeah.
0: So next question: How has your experience being mayor of Attleboro and being a state representative taught you about local police?
1: So generally speaking, being mayor of Attleboro has been the most rewarding job of my life. I love it. It's, I'm in my fifth year right now, and at the end of the month of December, that'll be a total of five years. And I was also a state representative for five years. So I was elected to three terms, but both as mayor and then as um, state representative before it, I left halfway through my third term to assume the new offices. So as as mayor, you can actually get things done. and Doing things for police uh, we've done made huge leaps with the police department, tripled the police training budget. So all of you know about what happened with George floyd, and you, that was an, a failure of a duty to intervene where other police officers should have intervened and if they had, you know George Floyd would probably still be with us so One of the things I've done with the Attable Police Department is make sure that every police officer has training in duty to intervene, uh, but also implicit bias, uh, de-escalation tactics, dealing with people with mental illness. And so that way, when police show up on the scene, they are better equipped. They have better tools to uh, approach these different situations. Because if you imagine it, like a police officer showing up on a scene, and they're in a kind of difficult situation, and they don't have the right training, things are going to probably go sideways pretty quickly. So I'm not about defunding the police. And actually, we also, uh, because if we were about defunding the police, then the first thing to get cut is probably the police training budget. And that's the very thing that keeps us out of the news in the first place. So we also purchased riot gear. We created a uh, cyber crime unit. We created a uh, traffic unit. Traffic and speeding are probably the biggest complaints I get about in the city. Um, but as mayor, you can actually get things done. The Sun Chronicle identified me as probably the greenest mayor in city history because we passed all these different ordinances that would uh, make us a cleaner, greener city. Uh, stuff like you know, banning uh, single-use plastic bags in the city, uh, banning pesticides that kill bees, the sale of those, uh, light bulbs that contain mercury. We don't sell those anymore. Uh, we ban the distribution of plastic and styrofoam takeaway cups and containers from restaurants. Uh, I bought a Highland uh, Country Club, w- which went bankrupt, and turned that into a park. So I've been like labeled by our local paper as the greenest mayor we've ever had in city history. As state rep, it was totally different. As state rep, it was really difficult to get things done, and uh, it was. I was actually very unhappy by my my third term. As my first term as state rep, I created a school internet infrastructure project for thirty eight million dollars, and that actually this school we're in may even have money that paid for some of your wiring. And so that was a program I created. Uh, Then I also worked on, like, homeless uh, children's funding, like funding for homeless children's programs, and then constituent service work. So it was just a lot more difficult to get things done as a state rep than as mayor. Um, But now as sheriff, it's, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning into that role, and the main job of the sheriff is to run the county jail, and it's not really a police job. In fact, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, our Supreme Court, they've said that sheriffs are not police officers, You know, they do a sheriff does have limited law enforcement authority, but a sheriff is not a police officer, not in Massachusetts. And that was a 2017 case of Commonwealth Massachusetts versus Gurnwich. And that's when the Supreme Judicial Court said, yeah, you guys are not police officers. Um, You have limited authority. So, yeah, that's um, a little bit of my thoughts on that.
0: Hi, so I'm Bronte Masuko. I'm one of the assistant editors of The Spectrum. And you've spoken a little bit to your desire to create a modern system. And, like, one of the biggest causes you've championed throughout your campaign is inmate rehabilitation. And so I was wondering what steps you plan to take to integrate, like, these programs into the Bristol County Correctional Facilities.
1: Okay, very good question. So there's a practice called evidence-based uh like crime prevention, evidence-based government, evidence-based corrections, most places are using evidence-based programs, most places. Sometimes they might, uh, they like the jail or the prison, might put in something that is not necessarily evidence-based, but it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, just a program that the administrator likes. So what I'd like to do is make sure that everything we're doing um we're measuring for outcomes so i want to take it one step further than just being evidence based i want to actually have evidence producing a good government is going to be critical of itself a good politician should be critical of themselves a good good uh, administrator should be critical of themselves if the government, the politician, the administrator say, no, we're doing everything the best we possibly can, then there's never going to be room for improvement. If you think you're doing the best that, that can be done and you're not being self-critical and looking at how you can do better, you're never going to get better. And that's, I think, where we had maxed out under Sheriff Hodgson because he said it by his, you know, his, in his own words, says, no, we're doing everything we can we're, you know, with the suicide, for example. So just because we're offering a drug treatment program or an anger management program it's not enough to assume the program works we have to measure it we have to actually make sure it works and that's a science you have to have a, you know, you have a treatment group the people that are getting their program but then you also have a have to have a control group uh, you know a, a comparison group that you can compare them to because if if we say the rate of recidivism for the people who are coming out of the drug treatment program is 20%. So 80% of the people don't re-offend. Okay, compared to what? You, have, you, know, you can't compare it to the general population because that's, you know, that's apples to oranges. So you have to have that control group. And that's, you know, that's a modern management approach. It's using data and statistics and research methods to actually help inform how you can improve your institution. So that, that's kind of at the core of what I'd like to do with, um, with programming. When I get into the jail, I'm going to have to look at all the programs that are being offered uh, what makes sense that why like why we're doing it? I mean, are we just offering a finger painting program because somebody is friends with the former? I'm being facetious saying this, but I don't think there's a finger painting program. But the, you know, they were offering a finger painting program because the you know the, the the current sheriff Hodgson, he was friends with the administrator of it, and the person just wanted to do it. Well, what are the what's the intention of that finger painting program? If the intention is to reduce recidivism. Okay, let's go ahead and measure it. I think I know which way that's going to go. But if it's not producing the outcomes we want, then we have to reform it um, or get rid of it and do something else. And a lot of people mix up, and I said the word outcome, a lot of people mix up the word output and outcome. Outputs are how many many people you're servicing, you know, the the output. So if, if this year we're servicing 50 people, then next year we're servicing 100 people, we doubled our output. Inputs are the resources used, the materials, the books, the money that goes into it. That's inputs. Outcomes are the change in behavior. An input is a descriptive statistic. An output is actually an analytical statistic. You have to have that control group to get an effect size. So as I have a master's in criminology, and I did all the coursework for a PhD. I just never did the dissertation. So it's a very kind of nuanced and sophisticated approach to management. Some I've been called a technocrat, like technical, you know, bureaucrat technocrat um, during the campaign. Some people might say, "Well, that's an insult." I actually, I mean, it it doesn't sound good, but it's actually a compliment. Um, So, uh, but that's the kind of approach I want to take to uh, programming, and it's not just offer evidence-based programs or programs in general. It's to be an evidence producing, produce the evidence that it's working. If it's working, good, we'll do more of it. If it's not working, we're going to reform it. You know, uh, we have to first look at why it's not working. You know, can't just say, okay, it's not working, throw our hands up. Th- then there's a whole content review and looking at the fidelity of a program. But this is um, this is modern management though. And it's it's a lot, it's not exciting. It's not glamorous. It's not talking about, immigration which is highly emotional and you know they they're illegal immigrants they shouldn't be here i mean nobody i'm not going to end up on the front page of the newspaper because oh my god paul measured a program and look at the program works or it doesn't work oh my god how exciting is that it's not it's boring you know but uh, it's and it's not it's not like exciting but um yeah so i guess that's my cue to stop
0: Hi, Sheriff Heru. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time. My name is Annika Dupree and um, mental health is a growing issue nowadays. So this question kind of touched on the programs that you're talking about. Um, what ideas do you have to implement mental health stability among prisoners, but also among staffers at the jails and the prisons? Because you mentioned you work in the system before. And there's kind of like this secular effect of staffers who go through this difficult job every day and that affects their mental health and then their morale and then how they treat the incarcerated. So I was wondering what your ideas for that are.
1: Okay, that's a very good question. And... Jails and prisons are sometimes called the largest mental health providers in their regions. You know, if it's a prison, it's the largest mental health provider in the state. If it's a jail, it's the largest in the county. Uh, and if you guys didn't know the difference, you go to jail for a misdemeanor or you're waiting trial, and you go to prison for a felony. So, um, basically, the again, first thing I want to do is go and see what is being offered because I know what good programming looks like. But I want to start by going to intake and seeing what type of mental health screening they're offering uh, the inmates when they come in to see if they're assessing what their needs are, see if they actually are doing what's called a risk needs assessment. A risk needs assessment is something that looks at, it's a test, usually about 25 questions. They look at what your risks and needs are to reoffend and how we are addressing those. And some of those questions are mental health related. Um, That is, you know, that's a good place to start when people come in. As far as the, you know, the training goes, making sure uh, the correctional officers have training in dealing, pe- dealing with people with mental illness so they can recognize when somebody is off, not being belligerent. And those are, those are two different things. Um, that's important for the correctional officers to make sure they have the training. Because we did that with Attable Police officers, and as we were dealing with essentially the same population. Because if you get arrested, then sometimes you end up in jail. So the, there's a lot of overlap between the two. Um, so as far as the correctional officers themselves, that is something I'm going to have to talk with, uh, you know, correctional officers as individuals. Talk to the union. Look at what they feel like the needs are. I know from anecdotally just talking to people. Up until now, they have said stuff like, oh, we're overworked. We are getting hooked to do overtime. We have to work an extra 20, 30 hours of overtime a week. That takes me away from my family. It's stressful. I don't want to continue working here. And so we ha- increasing the number of correctional officers available will help decrease the overtime because you, you have to have somebody manning these uh, posts uh, within the jail. Um, then you also have suicide within the jail, and suicide's sort of the ultimate... Kind of mental health crisis, you know. Beat pass. Okay, so with suicide, if you look at the research in suicide, the common denominator, kind of the core characteristic of people who think about committing suicide or actually attempt it and sometimes commit it, they're successful. The core, the common denominator is hopelessness. It's not depression. It's not a desire to kill yourself. It's you feel hopeless that the situation is not going to get better. And so identifying why the uh, inmates who are there are feeling hopeless, why they feel like it's not going to get better, um, and changing that culture, that would help decrease our suicide rate among the inmates. And for correctional officers, it's sort of the same thing. Why? Why are you thinking suicidally? You know, like why do you have suicidal ideation? What's going into that? And that's something that making sure that we have the resources available to um, the correctional officers. Because, for example, in Attleboro, uh, we have if we have like uh, people who are stressed out, they're you know. Um, they thinking suicide, we have resources available to the employees um that they can go to and they can do it on work time and they're not penalized for it and it's completely confidential. Um but making sure that's available to them is, is you know part of the job. So uh but yeah, mental health, it's you know, it's interesting. Mental health is such a big thing right now because ten years ago when I ran for state rep, in fact it was eleven years ago when I started thinking about it, um, I told my campaign team, I said, look, I want to run on, like measuring government programs. I was running for state rep, measuring government programs, and decreasing the stigma associated with mental illness and increasing, re- improving resources. And my team said, no, 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 you're a Democrat. Run on jobs, education, and healthcare. And I said, yeah, I know, I know, but listen, s- mental health issues affect so much, mo- so many people. You know. Uh, over the last year, 25 percent of the population have had some type of mental illness in one form or another. Over the course of people's lifetimes, it's usually about 45 percent you've had something. And it could be something temporary, like a bout of depression, or it can be something more longer-lasting, like bipolar disorder, so you can have a state or a trait, you know, type of uh, mental health issue. But when I campaigned on that, my, my campaign team was like, "No, no, this is stupid. Just you know, you, education, jobs and healthcare. that's what you need to campaign on you're a democrat those are the winning issues and i said i'm going to do what i do <laughs> and so here we are 10 years later and it's now become a huge issue in society and in, in public discourse so yeah
0: So this question I have is a bit more about like, you yourself personally. I know that you have a very impressive um, education repertoire with going to UPenn and Harvard. And I wanted to know, how do you find yourself using the knowledge from your education in your everyday professions? And how has that aided you to help with your like, future plans as sheriff?
1: OK, so that's a really good question. I'll give you a good example. Last night, I was on WBSM radio. And when I was on the radio, a caller called up and said, what are you going to do about food? Because we hear the food is terrible. It's not really nutritious. It's the bare minimum to keep people alive in Bristol County. And I said, let me tell you guys a story about this guy named Adrian Rain. Adrian Rain is a, uh, a British guy. And he was one of my professors when I was at the University of Southern California. And then by chance, as I went to the University of Pennsylvania, he ended up there too. So we, we, you know, it was just by coincidence we both ended up there. And then I was doing my master's in criminology. Adrian Rain, because it's it's your your question was how do you apply the education? This is a good example. Adrian Rain did some research in the Mauritius Islands, which is off the east coast of uh, southern Africa. It's a big, huge island, and you know, just off the coast of Madagascar. Um, he looked at it was a longitudinal research, and he looked at behavioral outcomes with kids who continued on with their diet versus kids who were given a diet rich in omega-3 fatty acids. And we know that uh, omega-3 fatty acids help with um, the uh, brain development and impulse control, and so he he gave this one group of kids like a really healthy diet, and then he gave the other kids, the, you know, continued on the diet that they were operating with. And he looked at them over the course of years. And the behavioral outcomes were just night and day, just completely. And that was the only difference between the two, is that diet. That's the only, diff- that's the only thing they got differently. So when we, if we take that research and we apply that to jail, where you have a young population of inmates, and a lot of people in jail are less than uh, twenty-five years old, they're you know they they're young, they're, they do stupid things, you know they've they've made a mistake, but their brains are still developing. And if we take that research that Adrian Rain did, and we apply that to the uh, our correctional facility, and we give people a proper diet that is uh, going to help with their brain development, we're going to see behavioral outcomes. So that that's one example of where you just learn this academic stuff at the university level and then you apply it in a work setting and you know you 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 know you'll get, expect to get better outcomes another thing is that what i was talking about earlier so i have a masters in criminology i was taught how to measure pro, uh, programs you know using a treatment group and a control group and looking at that you know that that's a skill set i learned when i was at the university of pennsylvania and if we also talk about like when I was a grad student at Harvard, some people might say, OK, so Paul went to Harvard. He thinks he knows everything. That's actually not the case. It's the complete opposite. Because when I was in uh, Harvard, I went to the Kennedy School of Government. And I was in a room with 30 people. And were, these are 30 people from all over the place. They are from all over the world. They're from all over the country. They're from all over different backgrounds and uh, different professional backgrounds. So my background was in corrections because I worked in jail and prison and the Middle East because I lived there and, you know, did some national security work. And so I that was my background. But when I was in a class with 30 people, there were 29 people who were smarter than me at 29 different uh, topics. That was the best thing I learned about being at Harvard. It wasn't any one particular lesson, it was that when you go into a room, there's going to be a lot of other people who know stuff that you don't know. And the best thing you can do is listen and not, don't, don't go in acting like you know everything. Because if you do that, you're going to embarrass yourself because there's always other people who have expertise that are better than you. Um, I, I forgot who said it, but it's kind of like the, do we judge intelligence by doing a math test or by climbing a tree or swimming? And it all depends on the environment, you know? So like if, you know, um, like a monkey will be, you know, the, like have the highest intelligence at climbing a tree. The fish will have the best intelligence when it comes to swimming and maybe people would be better at math. Although my dog can do math quite well. I can explain that if you want to hear that. It's kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, my dog counts. It's really cute. But um, but yeah, so that's so yeah those are some of the the lessons I take from you know my education like with you know looking at you know the, the like just a pure academic research and then applying that in the real world using that like the uh, omega3 fatty acid and a healthy diet with you know development of brains and impulse control and getting behavioral outcomes it's looking at the research methods and applying that to modern management of programs and then it's just more general things where you are a member of a class where you recognize and if you don't recognize it you can embarrass yourself. But when you go into a room, there's a lot of people who are gonna be a lot smarter than you. And so those are some of the takeaways I had from um, you know, my time in, you know, in college and everything. So and you really is I guess as a last bit I would say is with college and university, you get out of it what you put into it. So there are some people who just skate through They pass their tests. They collect collect their degree. And then they become the governor of Florida named, you know, he went to Harvard Law School, Ron DeSantis. (laughs) So... Um, So I'm not a fan. Um, So, I mean, and then, um, I mean, George Bush uh, Jr. George Bush Jr. went to Yale undergrad, then Harvard, I'm sorry, Harvard Business School. And then, you know, he was the president who led us into Iraq, which we did not belong in. There was no reason to invade Iraq, Afghanistan. Absolutely. You know, so just because you go to good universities and schools, it doesn't mean that you are, um, you know, you're, 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 all that you know and you could, like colin powell you know he was a former secretary of state he was a general you guys might remember him as well i um, mean colin powell he died just recently um he went to city university of new york i think it was city university of new york It was in a very modest uh, state school so um yeah you get out of education what you put into it
0: Hi, I'm Mackenzie. I just want to say that was wonderful advice for all of us here. And I also had a question. So you mentioned that you purchased Riot Gear. I was wondering like what the thought process was behind that. Because it's like the first time that's happened in city history.
1: So really good question. On In June of 2020, we had a Black Lives Matter rally in Attleboro, which I attended. And the we didn't want a uniformed police presence at the um at the rally we we didn't want that but we had about 40 or 45 police officers ready to respond and they were at at the police headquarters and so when they were there, um, we didn't want you know we we didn't want to antagonize the uh, BLM uh, protesters. You know we we respect their right for peaceful assembly. You know meet at Capron Park, and you know that's that's fine. That's how it should go down. They became quite agitated, and they eventually you know went down to uh, police headquarters. They were demanding to see the police chief. They wanted to see the police chief, and so eventually the police chief came out. But we had 300 um, angry protesters. And they weren't doing anything wrong. But they had 300, we had 300 angry, angry protesters. But then on the inside of the police headquarters, we had about 40 or 45 police officers. It might have even been more. It was quite a few. But they were all wearing plain clothes, just regular uniformed police officers. And if things had gone sideways, and they didn't. You know, I was very happy they didn't. And you know, but sometimes protesters, uh, there's you know, out of the people who show up for legitimate, lawful protest, sometimes there are agitators in there who then say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and throw a brick through a plate glass window. I'm going to go ahead and you know start ma- you know making a mess of things. And that happens. You know, and it's just uh, you know, but the vast majority of those 300 were there for you know lawful First Amendment protest, and and we respect that, and that was. But at the end of all that, though, when we do what's called an after-action review, we looked at what did we do right, what did we do wrong, what could have happened if things went sideways, and when I realized that the police department, you know, we had these police officers inside, didn't have any riot gear, you know, if things had gone sideways, I said we're we're letting them go out there with, you know, nothing like you know, no head equipment, no helmets or face masks or anything. Like I'm talking like the shields. And, you know, please, no, we don't have that stuff. I said, oh, my God. I said, that's not right. So it's better to have and not need than need and not have. And so I said, okay, let's put it into the budget and let's kind of keep it on the down low because, you know, we don't want to... um, look like we're preparing for war, but I have to get police officers the equipment they need to stay safe if things go sideways. So we purchased uh, 20 sets of riot gear for 20 police officers the first year, and then we did it again the second year, and then we did it again the third year. So now we have about 60... sets of riot gear for the police department. I think we're kind of just stopping there. I mean, we might do another round of 20. I don't really know, but I won't be, I won't be mayor anymore, but we basically have a healthy amount of riot gear and it's not necessarily just for Attleboro. It's also for if things are, there's a problem in another surrounding community and you call in mutual aid and then Attleboro can respond and it just, it gives them the protection they need. So it's, it's about responding, not about, Um, you know, uh, antagonizing because that's, like I said, when we had this rally at Capron Park, we didn't have any playing, I'm sorry, we didn't have any uh, uniformed police officers there. We didn't want want the uh, protesters to feel like we were watching over them. Big Brother was watching over them. We wanted them to feel like, hey, they're comfortable to express their views and we're not going to you know uh, kind of uh, come crashing down on that so that you know that was the attitude we took but it's basically necessary to have you know protection for the people who are there to protect us so yeah
0: so you've alluded a few times to your um experience like internationally in the middle east and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why like what inspired you to return afterwards and like um, look for a position in Attleboro after you had had so much experience overseas?
1: Thank you, good question. I, yeah, so I've been to about 20 different countries or maybe 25, I, I lost count. Um, for my classmates that I went to grad school with like Harvard or the London School of Economics, 20 or 25 is actually a small number. Some of them have been 50, 60, 100. So it's just, it's just a mindset that we all share. But what brought me to Saudi Arabia? So I was studying psychology and neuroscience as an undergrad, and I was always attracted to aberrant and deviant behavior. And sometimes I looked at criminal behavior, or you know, troubled kids. You know, conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD that goes sideways, and the kids get into trouble. Um, so I was always looking at behaviors that were just kind of problematic, aberrant, deviant. And then I graduated from USC in uh, May of 2001. So a few months later, September 11th happened, and I was like, "What's this type of aberrant, deviant, criminal behavior? Terrorism? I never even thought about that before. Terrorism is an international crime. This was slightly different. This was this had religion in, as an element to it, and so." you know, the, uh, and 15 of the 19 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia and you hear about Saudis and Islam and the Middle East and the news back then it was all of the news. That's all you ever hear about. And everybody's speculating, oh, the role of Islam in, in, um, the terrorism. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go to Saudi Arabia and learn for myself about the religion, culture, politics, uh, language, people. So I, How do you get into Saudi Arabia? It's a very closed society. So this is actually a tip for all of you. If you ever want to travel the world for free, teach English. It's the easiest way to travel the world for free. And if you go to, uh, here's another little tip. If you go to tefl.com, I think it is, teachenglishforeignlanguage.com, maybe it's .org, you'll find jobs available teaching English all over the world. Like in some places you've probably never even heard of. Um, You can go to nice kind of Western places. They have English teaching jobs all in Europe and you can go to the Middle East, you can go to China. So that was the easiest way for me to get into into Saudi Arabia, just teach English. So I, I... Flew out to England and went to the University of Cambridge. Did a teaching certificate in uh, certificate in English language teaching to adults. It's a CELTA, is what it's called. So I have a you know proper teaching credential. And then I took that and looked at a couple places in Saudi Arabia. And one of them offered me a job. It was called the European Center. It was a branch of Al Raji, which is a a uh, a bank in Saudi Arabia, so it was their human resources. And so I worked for a European center under al Raji HRD, and then they would put me into a place I called SABIC, Saudi Basic Industries Corporation. And so I basically had a class of I don't know, 25, 20, sometimes 15 students. I had six different classes, if I remember right. Uh, and each class would last you know about six weeks or so. I think that's what it was. So it was about 36 weeks. And yeah, so that's, that's about right, the math. And so um, basically, I got to have contact with Saudis all day every day, um, just teaching English. And then they would invite me out to their houses afterwards. And it's, but the entire six months I was in Saudi Arabia, I never spoke with a woman. Never once. Not allowed to. It's what's called haram. It's forbidden. You might have heard of something called halal. Halal is, you know, permissible. Haram is the opposite. Haram is forbidden. So I never spoke to a woman the entire time. When I would go over my Saudi uh, guest's house, I wasn't allowed to interact with their wives uh, if the wife were to cook something you know she would just bring it in and then quickly go back out and she would eat the uh, leftovers that we had um, it was illegal for a woman to and this is 2003 it was illegal for a woman to drive a car or in the, the equivalent a little girl to ride a bicycle you know so it was just a very different society very different society they also in saudi arabia they had been, they were so convinced there were 52 states in the United States. I was like, 50, everybody believed that there were 52 U.S. states. I'm like, did something change since I was in seventh grade geography or something? Like, you know, like, did something change? I actually was like, oh, my God, are there really 52 and I missed something? Like, what's going on here? And But I think what it I, looking back, what I think what it was is they thought there were 50 continental plus Alaska and Hawaii. Maybe that's what was going through their mind. Um but that was it was a heck of a good learning experience and if you ever want to travel for free you know what you do is you just get a job teaching english somewhere overseas and you get a contract they will pay for you to fl- they'll fly you out there they'll pay for your little apartment accommodation give you a salary when you're there, and then fly you home at the end of your contract. Um, but it's a great way to travel for free and to really immerse yourself in a culture. I didn't live in a compound. I lived in the community. I shopped at the grocery stores. Compounds back in 2003 were bomb magnets. Um, they were constantly getting bombed. And you know, when, when I was there, like Westerners were getting kidnapped and beheaded all the time. And, you know, I had to, every time something like that happened, I'd call home mom and it's okay. I was not involved. And, you know, I know you heard about the Westerner and so it wasn't me. So it was, uh, it was a heck of a great experience. But then after coming back, I worked for a national security think tank and then I did my two masters, one in criminology at Penn, then another one in LSE and in, on international relations. But then I got a job working in jail and then prison and then went back to grad school for, at Harvard for a third and final master's, and then I um, you know, uh, ran for office, I started shaking babies and kissing hands, and then I became state rep. Now I'm mayor. I, I might have said that backwards. Uh,
0: hi, I'm Piper. So I'm actually a martial artist myself, and I'm currently... Uh, it's called Sudo. It's very similar to, to... Yeah. So I was wondering, like what like because you mentioned like knife fights and stuff we do not do anything like that it is mostly like self-defense and we obviously we fight and we have like staffs that we use but nothing more than that so I think it's really cool that you get to do like knife fights and I was just wondering like how long it took and like how much effort you put in like with martial arts so
1: have you ever done tie my Show? you don't know tie my Show? just in case if you ever tie my shoe. you know <laughs> It's just a joke, <laughs> like you tie my shoe. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it's just a bad joke. Um, <laughs> so you fell for it, though. <laughs> so yeah, ta- I, I do know about Tang Soo Do. It's a, a Korean martial art. So when I was a kid, I played a lot of video games. I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. And there was a video game, Ninja Gaiden. It was, it was a Nintendo video game. And so I was playing that with my friend Fred, and Fred, uh, he had done Taekwondo, another Korean martial art, but we had a uh, Ninja Gaiden, like uh, kind of manual, like a like, like help book, if you will. And so we got talking about ninjas, and I'm 12 years old. Ooh, that's the coolest thing ever, a ninja. Oh my God, that's really cool. So... I then um, at 12 years old I started I started training in Kempo Karate which is um, you know it's a different martial art. I ended up with a green belt in that and then I learned about this martial art called Jeet Kundo. And Jeet Kundo is the martial art that Bruce Lee founded. And Bru- it was it was kind of an eclectic system of a little of this, a little of that. So Bruce Lee certified um, three people to teach Jeet Kundo. And one of them was a guy named Dan Inasanto. Dan Inasanto was also a Filipino uh, martial artist. He's, he, he taught, uh, he studied in m- so many different martial arts. That guy's a walking encyclopedia. He's still alive. I think he's in his 80s. But he was, um, so he, Filipino martial arts uh, were basically knife fighting and stick fighting. And have you ever heard Marines be called leathernecks? Have you ever heard that term? Okay, so Marines are called, it's a nickname, Marines are called Leathernecks. You also hear them called Jarheads. You know, Marines are called Jarheads. But this, this might be an interesting trivia. Marines were called Leathernecks because, as you might know your history, the um, uh, United States military, the Marines, they were fighting in the Philippine Islands. And the Filipinos, their national system of defense was knife fighting and stick fighting, blade fighting. And so what they often would do is jump out of bushes, jump out of trees, and slash the throats of marines, forcing marines to wear leather around their necks to protect them, hence where came, you know, the term leather net came from. A little bit of history with the people. So there's that, that background that people are like, oh, where'd that come from? That's where it comes from. So the knife fighting and stick fighting uh, was a very functional martial art. Uh, you know, Filipino martial arts, Filipino kali, eskrima, arnis, and there was all different types of those. There's Six thousand different Philippine islands, and so I spent basically my entire, you know, like teen years, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, all twenties, you know, my early twenties, training in Jeet Kune Do, Filipino kali, but then when I was fifteen years old, I attended a seminar. With a guy named Paul Vunak, who ended up becoming my instructor, and he was trained under Dan Asanto. So Bruce Lee certified Dan Asanto, who certified Paul Vunak, who certified me, and so there's a direct lineage. Um, so I'm a full instructor in Filipino um, Kali, which, and then also G Kune Kundo. Uh, and I got certified as an apprentice instructor in 1995, but then a full instructor in 1999. And I, I, I taught in my own studio, JKD Kali Academy. Um, From like 1995 until 2009, when I closed it down, and so, but I also trained in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and I started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. We used to be called Gracie Jiu Jitsu, but then there's different strands of it. But I started that in 1992, about a year before the first Ultimate Fighting Championship happened. So, so that was my entire youth, like just. Just training in martial arts. I did it so poorly in high school. I just didn't put any, I didn't try. I really did not apply myself. I actually had to go to night school first, get my grades up before I could apply to the University of Southern California. So I, um, you know, I just did really, all I did was martial arts training. That's it. That's all I did for my entire teen years through most of my 20s. I just trained. So um, I also did a bunch of uh, fights. I probably got about 20 fights under me. And you can find two of them on the internet. Uh, If you look up my name, Paul Hero and Knife Fights, and it's a YouTube video, it's out there. I'm the guy wearing the blue USC shorts with no shirt. So that's me. And the other guy, uh, it's just these were two fights that happened in 2021, I believe. It was, no, it was 2021. Why did I say that? 20, 2001. 2001 or 2000. It was one of the other. I can't remember which year it was. Um, but I just by chance, I ended up fighting the same guy in, um, in May and then again in September, a few months later. And those were... Uh, Dull, hard, dull plastic knives, and they still hurt a lot when you get hit with that. I mean, you're really getting hit with a hard PVC, and the only thing we had on was basically a fencing mask to protect us, but, um, and that was for the, the, the like knife fights. But the stick, there's, again, it's a dull, hard plastic. The stick fights, those hurt. Like I mean I, we you if you get hit with a stick it's like this rattan or a stick, and rattan is kind of like a bamboo. It's just a little bit more a little bit denser than a bamboo, Um, but they would leave what we call a stick hickey on us for for months on end. You know I had one like right here on my leg that was there for about, it was there for. It was six months. It was about nine inches long because I got smacked by this guy named Arlen Sanford. I mean, he kicked my butt. I mean, that's putting it mildly. Oh, he, he gave me a beating, and that was a stick fight. It wasn't a knife fight, but my God, that guy gave me a beating. Um, so I, that particular day, I had six fights on that day, and each one only lasts about two minutes. They're all timed. Um, but my God, he gave me a B and, and in fact that that day was really funny because I didn't, I didn't know any better and I didn't bring anything to drink. And so at the end of those six fights, I, um, uh, the, like I went through a 30 ounce, like drink of water within like three seconds because I was so dehydrated it was at a place called Hermosa Beach Uh, I was at a park in Hermosa Beach in California and the sun was coming down it was in May it was hot there and so yeah when I finally was done um, I just went and just like put 30 ounces of water down in like um, three seconds and I didn't realize how thirsty I was until it hit me but yeah so sometimes you know some you do well in some and then other times you don't do so well I was much better as a knife fighter than I was a stick fighter um you know, and, you know, in jujitsu, you know, that's, so you do a little of everything, you know, there's, uh, because there's, you know, there's no one superior martial art. I mean, some are more functional than others, but it's just like college. You kind of get out of it what you put into it. So, yeah.
0: And that's a wrap on today's podcast. A big thank you to Sheriff Harrow for coming in and joining us today. Thanks for listening. The Spectrum staff will be back soon.